Hello and welcome to the Build with Clay podcast. I am your host, Clay Davis. This podcast is designed to introduce you to people from across the world who have one thing in common. They want to grow in their life and inspire others. You'll get a front row seat to hear about how they define their mindset and their purpose. We'll unearth their habits, their failures, and learnings throughout their journey. And this will allow you to take those habits, those failures, and those learnings and apply them to your personal growth journey, no matter where you're trying to build yourself and grow. This podcast is designed for you, so thank you for being here. Prepare to meet interesting people, hear fun stories, learn something new, and plan to leave inspired. In this episode, we build with Doug Stevenson. Doug is the founder and president of Story Theater International, a speaking, training, and consulting company now based in Tucson, Arizona. His company trains thousands of professionals and executives each year for clients that include Microsoft, Amgen, Bayer, Caterpillar, and more. Since 1994, he has delivered keynotes and taught storytelling for business success in the U.S., Canada, Australia, Austria, Costa Rica, and the list goes on. Doug used to believe he was destined to be the next Bob Hope. That was back in the 1960s, when he was a child making up his mind about who he wanted to be. He dedicated 20 years of his life to becoming a successful actor, only to realize that his destiny was much greater and far more meaningful than being a movie star. Now, having spoken to audience all over the world and having coached and trained countless individuals on how to become amazing speakers, trainers, and leaders, he's discovered that he isn't supposed to act like Bob Hope. His gift is the ability to give people hope. Doug is the creator of the Story Theater Method for Strategic Storytelling in Business and author of the book by the same name. He is also the creator of the How to Write and Deliver a Dynamic Speech System and the Next Level Story Video E-Learning Series. He's also the host of the Storytelling That Sticks for Business and Life podcast. He not only presents transformational speeches, he follows them by analyzing what he has just done. Not only does he make you laugh and cry, he teaches you how he does it. It's as if he's a magician who does a wonderful magic trick and then takes you behind the curtain and shows you all of his secrets. Enjoy. Super excited to have Doug Stevenson, who's the host of Storytelling That Sticks podcast. So Doug, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much, Clay. So you and I have not met uh, beyond the last you know 10 minutes of getting to know one another and through me listening to your podcast, which I've greatly enjoyed, and we'll link everything in the in the show notes to make sure to direct folks to your podcast and, and everything else that you have going on. But in order to get to know you a little bit, I always throw out a couple would you rather questions. So I'm going to throw some at you. Sounds Would good. you rather meditate for two hours or read for two hours? Read for two hours. I have a hard time favorite? sitting still for two hours meditating because my brain goes all over the place and I have to keep fighting with it. But if I'm reading a good book, it activates my imagination and I enjoy it. All right. Give me a book recommendation. I like Jack Reacher novels. I like any novel that's like a, a murder mystery or some kind of a, uh, a drama where there's uh, good guy cops or detectives or something trying to thwart the bad guys and figuring out the mystery. And there's just a lot of different authors that I follow where I, I like a series like Sue Grafton, Tony Hillerman, uh, a series where there's a couple of characters that I can get to know their personality, their history, their foibles. And so um, those are the kind of books that I like to read. Would you rather take only bubble baths or only cold showers? <laughs> oh, gosh. Bubble baths. Hate cold showers. <laughs> All right. And if you're about to go on a road trip, let's say you and your wife are about to go on a road trip, you're going to drive five, six hours, and you're going to stop at a gas station at the beginning of this road trip, and you get to go get one snack and one drink. What are you grabbing? I think I would grab a bottle of Gatorade and a bag of chips. Any specific chips? Mm, barbecue chips. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate you going through those get to know yous there. I ask every guest these two questions. So I'm going to start with this one. 
Could you define in your words what a growth mindset is? Uh, a growth mindset is uh, predicated on the fact that you know that you don't know and that you want to know, that you want to learn. A growth mindset has a lot to do with uh, being open to learning and being voracious learner and not being afraid to fail and make mistakes, but rather having such a desire to grow and learn and get to the next level, whatever that next level is, that you're constantly challenging yourself. You're constantly looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, why, why did I just make that mistake again? How, how can I, what, what can I do? What can I do to, to, to better myself? How can I learn more about myself so that I can be happier, healthier, and, and more of a contributor in the world? So to me, a growth mindset is, it's not about never being satisfied because that's a failure mindset. It's like, oh, I'm never good enough. I'm never satisfied. No, a growth mindset says I'm doing fine, but I think I can do better. How can I stop making the same mistakes? How can I anticipate a bad decision and not make it? How can I get to that next level? Who do I need to connect with? How do I need to do that better? But basically, it's about self-wisdom, self-knowledge, self-advancement. How would you define your why or your purpose in life? You know, I saw that question before we got on today. And considering that, I thought, boy, my why has changed a lot. Um, and I just turned 72 years of age. And now I have the ability to look back on all those chapters of my life in a way that I hadn't been able to do before to ask, actually understand, well, my why started out to be that I wanted people to approve of me and like me. But that wasn't really a why. That was just insecurity wanting to be chosen, wanting women to choose me, wanting to be chosen for a role in a play. And then my why became, I want to be a movie star, which was once again, a goal, not necessarily a why. Uh, but my why during all that was to be the best actor that I could be, to just be a transcendent, brilliant actor, some, the, the kind of actor that other actors would say, now that's, that's amazing. That guy's amazing. That guy's really good. And, and so the why was, uh, once again, just like my why about growth mindset, to be better, to be masterful. So my mindset, my why has always been to be masterful. But then at a certain point, I realized my why is to be happy. Because when I was off in Los Angeles, trying to make it in Hollywood as, a, as, a, as an actor in movies and TV and whatever, I started out with just such a joyous, naive, I can do this. I can make it. I'm going to be chosen. It's just a foregone conclusion. This is my destiny in life. And over a period of 13 years, it went from, I want to be the best actor that I could possibly be to, I want a TV show. I want a movie. I want to be a star. And I was miserable. And I was so unhappy on a daily basis that I realized I have to leave this all behind. I have to leave Hollywood. I have to leave acting. I have to leave it all because my why is be happy. I haven't been happy in a long time. I want to be happy. And as, as I got out of Los Angeles and started on my next venture, my next life, my next chapter, happiness started to come back. So to answer that question now, what is my why? My why is to be happy, is to be content, is to be okay with what is. Because if I'm happy, then my wife is happy, then my kids are happy, then my grandkids are happy, then everybody that I talk to is happy, then you are happy having me on your podcast because you wouldn't have me on your podcast right now if you didn't listen to my podcast and think, this guy's interesting, this guy's putting out a lot of good energy. He sounds happy. Lots of good juju. Lots of good juju. And so I can't do any of the work that I do, podcasts or coaching or anything, without that bottom line of, I gotta be happy. Because when you're happy, things happen. You're attractive. Big time. And you sleep better. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. And it's it's contagious. You know, it's kind of what you're getting at is you're certainly contagious. And we yeah. all have that choice to be happy, no matter what extraneous things are happening in our life. Yeah, what but the what, doing. What, I, what I realized though is my why is not my job. It's not my goal. It's not my accomplishment. My why is something much, much deeper. 
Why do you exist? Why do you go through every day? Why, why do you feel the way you do at the end of the day? Do you wake up happy? Do you go to bed happy? Or are you miserable all the time? If you are, then your why is, 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 is incorrect. You got to get another why. Yeah, and I, I like hearing you think through that because a lot of times we don't set aside time to think through what our why is because you're right. It, the natural thing is just, oh, well, I want to be good at this or I want to try these things. And that's okay. Have goals, have things you strive for. But when things get tough, if your why isn't strong as to why you're truly being whatever you're being, then that's when things can get even harder because you don't have something to fall back on when those tough times inevitably happen. So um, I love the be happy. That's that's what it's all about. It sounds simplistic, but it's actually hard to do. <laughs> it is very hard to do, especially on a consistent basis. It is. All right. So you have a very interesting journey, Doug. I'd like to pick it up in college where you began at Augustana College and after a year decided to transfer to the University of Kansas. Right. And then what happened? Well, the... I mean, I knew I wanted to be an actor. I went to this college. They didn't even have an acting class or an acting teacher or anything. It's like, what a doofus I was to make that choice. University of Kansas had an amazing musical theater program, theater program. I was going to transfer there. And in the summer in between, I decided I need to look for something that I can do theater-wise, an acting class or something. So I got into a Second City improv workshop. The Second City is right there in Chicago. And I was in this Second City workshop and I just thought it was so stupid. I just did not like this improv stuff. We were doing these dumbass improv exercises because your first six week class is, is just silly little intro improv classes. And I just thought this is so demeaning. This is so senseless. I want an acting class, a real acting class. And a lady in my acting class and I were walking out afterwards and I was telling her how I thought this is just stupid. What are we doing in here? This is just stupid. I want to be an actor. And she says, oh, you need to find, you need to go to the Ted Liss acting class. And so I went to the Ted Liss acting class and it's like, oh my gosh, this is the real thing. These are not college students. These are adults. These are models and actors making a living. These are people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. I am in an acting class with a New York classical method acting teacher who really knows his stuff. And these these exercises, doing scenes from plays and getting critiqued and getting coached. This is what I want. So I never went back to college. And I ended up studying with Ted Liss in, in this acting class for two and a half years. And that completely transformed my life because it's like, well, I'm not going to go back to college because I don't need algebra. I don't need chemistry. That's not what, when I go to an audition, they never ask me, you know, what was your grade in chemistry? Did you take advanced trig? <laughs> it's like, no, they don't care. We don't care about an actor, whether they went to college or not. And so I knew it's like, this is what I need to do. And that's where it all shifted. No college. I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to do it this way. And then what happened? Well, while I was studying acting in Chicago, it became very clear that this is the early 70s, 1969, 70, 71. What, what started to happen is I could get cast in plays, The Merchant of Venice. The second play I did was Grease. I was the original Danny Zuko in the original Chicago production of Grease. And I was doing theater, but you weren't getting paid. This is non-professional theater. And the only money you could make as an actor was in TV commercials, radio commercials, and modeling. There were no TV shows. There were no movies. And if there was a movie that came through, all of the major roles were cast in Hollywood or New York. So I realized I need to get to L.A. because I didn't want to go to New York. I wanted to go to L.A. And so I, I, I decided I need to save a thousand bucks. I need to pay off my car and then I'm going to go when the time is right. Well, the time was never right. I was driving taxi during the day. I was doing theater or doing acting class at night. I never had the time to save any money. And, and like after a couple of years of saying, I'm going to Hollywood, I'm going to Hollywood. My friend Susan and I were having um, a late you know, midnight breakfast after acting class. And she said, Doug, what's going on with going to Los Angeles? I mean, a year ago, you told me you were going to go and you're still sitting here with me having breakfast. What's going on? 
And I said, well, I'm waiting for the perfect time. I want to save a thousand dollars. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know you want to save a thousand dollars. You want to pay off your car. How are you doing paying off your car? And I said, well, I haven't you know, made any payments. My dad's being very lenient. And she says, how much money do you save? And I said, I haven't saved anything. And she says, well, when are you going to go? I said, I don't know. Leave me alone for crying out loud. I'll go when it's perfect. She said, Doug, it's never going to be perfect. What you need to do is just pick a date. And I said, what do you mean pick a date? She says, get out a calendar and pick a date. And on that date you go, no matter what, no matter whatever money you have or don't have, whether you have a car or not, pick a date on that date you go. Well, I realized that I had been putting it off and putting it off because I was scared. I didn't know anybody in Los Angeles. I did not know how it was going to happen. So I wanted this cushy, I have $1,000 in my pocket and I've got a car. Well, I picked a date and, and like four months later on September 15th, I stuck out my thumb and I hitchhiked because I didn't have $1,000. I had 250 bucks and I didn't have a car because I couldn't make car payments. And so I just decided I just have to go. And my why was get out of here, go. And so I stuck out my thumb and bingo, there I was on the road. And I was petrified, literally petrified, because at that time I had heard these stories about people getting killed, hitchhiking, you know, people, some moron, crazy person, you know, picks you up and dumps you off in a field and kills you. And it was like, shit, I'm going to die. <laughs> but I was so invested in, I have to go. I just have to go because I'm not progressing. I'm not getting anywhere here that I stuck out my thumb and somebody picked me up, somebody else picked me up, somebody else picked me up, which brings into play this concept of unseen allies. When I was in Second City and I was frustrated, this woman, Melora, this friend of mine said, oh, you need Ted Liss. Well, I have never had a relationship with Melora other than that conversation. And she said, go see Ted Liss. She was an unseen ally. And then my, my friend Susan, who says, pick a date another unseen ally, somebody who's giving me hints along the way. As I was hitchhiking, one person after another would pick me up. And it's like, these were all unseen allies, each one of them taking me a little bit further down the road, closer to my goal. Well, I, you know, I would, I would go to a university where I had a friend who graduated with me from high school and I'd stay in their dorm room overnight, like at the University of Iowa. But then the next day after the University of Iowa, I'm out there on the road in a, in a car and my you know, second ride that day. And the next place where I had a friend in college was the University of Denver. Well, to go from Iowa to Denver is a long way. It's all the way across Iowa, all the way across Nebraska into Colorado. It's at least 14, 15 hour drive if you just stay getting the rides. If you're hitchhiking, that's like 20 hours, 24 hours. Well, the second ride is driving along the freeway and along comes his Volkswagen bus and on the back window is a decal that says University of Denver. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, this is a sign. This is a sign. And so I asked the guy I was driving with, pull up next to them in the passing lane, pull up next to them, get even with the guy with the Volkswagen bus. I need to, I need to talk to them and see if I can get a ride with them. So he's like, okay. And he pulls up next to them. I roll down my window. I'm yelling, hey, you guys, hey, hey, roll down your window. And these guys, the, guy, the driver looks over and he rolls down his window. I said, hey, I'm going to the University of Denver. I'm hitchhiking. Are you going there? Could I get a ride with you? And the guy looks at me and he turns his head and he looks back around like he's talking to somebody, he comes back and said, okay. So we pull over to the side of the road. Now I switch cars. Now I'm in the back of a Volkswagen bus with three college students who are going back to the University of Denver for school. And for the next like 10 hours, I'm with these guys in this Volkswagen bus. They're paying for my meals. They're driving me all the way across country. They kept switching drivers. And at like eight o'clock in the morning, we pull up to the front door of the dorm of the person that I knew at the University of Denver. Door to door service, Iowa to the University of Denver. Oh my God, this was just like, this is weird. This is so strange. All of these people helping me out. These guys not only said, where are you going? University of Denver, they said, what dorm? I'm like, this is working out way better than I could have imagined. Well, the next day I got a ride that went all the way down to Albuquerque into Flagstaff, Arizona. I stayed overnight with this guy's parents who had a motel. I got a free night in a hotel and a bed and a free breakfast. And I'm, I'm, I'm almost in California and I'm thinking, 
I was so afraid of where I was going to sleep at night, how this is going to work out. Am, am I going to get killed by some crazy person? And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm like starting to come into Los Angeles. I'm in California now. And I'm thinking, I want to sleep under the stars at least one night. But the guy I was with, he was going all the way into LA. And I said, no, 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 please, could you just drop me off at the next rest stop? And so for the first time, after five days of being on the road, he lets me off at this rest stop outside Palm Springs, and I slept under the stars. And the next day, a guy picks me up, takes me all the way into Los Angeles, and he says to me, well, where are you going? I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be an actor in Hollywood. I'm going into Hollywood. And he said, you know what? I wasn't going into Hollywood, but you know what? I'm going to go out of my way. I'm going to drop you off in Hollywood. Unseen allies all over the place, unseen allies. Well, now I'm in Los Angeles. I go to the University of uh, UCLA because that's where I thought I had a friend, maybe. He wasn't there. I ended up sleeping in Pauley Pavilion where they play basketball the first night that I was in Los Angeles because I was walking up towards the dorms to maybe sleep in, on, on a couch in a dorm for the first night there in Los Angeles. And I see all of these students who look just like me. I was 22. They all look just like me and they're walking into this like poly pavilion, this basketball arena with knapsacks and backpacks and, and sleeping bags. Well, that's exactly what I looked like. So I followed them in. This is the one night of the year that they let all the students that want to sleep in the aisles of poly pavilion because it's 6 a.m. the next morning, the tickets go on sale for the USC UCLA basketball game. So the first night I'm sleeping in poly pavilion. I was wondering where I was going to sleep. I have, an, I have a basketball stadium. And the next morning, I stick my thumb out in Westwood, just outside of, of UCLA. And this funky looking dude, he's got blonde hair and a beard. And he looks like Jesus in a 1959 Chevy. And he, he pulls up next to me and he says, what are you doing, man? You can't hitchhike on the street in Los Angeles. Get in the car. And I get in this, this, this Chevy with this guy. And we're driving along on the way to this appointment I had to go see an apartment where a bunch of students, like six students rented an apartment off campus. And I was going to like bunk with them, get an apartment with them because I needed a place to live. And by the time we had been together for like 10 minutes driving to this place, he takes a look at me and I take a look at him and he says, you don't want to go see that apartment, do you? And I said, no, but I don't know what to do. And he says, come on, st st stick with me. I'll I'm going to take you home. Uh, I have a friend who's looking for a, a roommate. Uh, I can introduce you tomorrow. His name is Darwin. Uh, he takes me back to his his tiny little apartment in uh, Santa Monica. He says to me, here's a joint. You can stay here and take a bath. I know you need to take a bath. I'm going to take my guitar and go down to the beach. Uh, if you want to, come and join me. And he gets up and he leaves. He just walks out of the apartment and I'm in this guy's apartment. I'm thinking, that's awfully trusting. Gordon becomes my next unseen ally who changed my life. He let me sleep in, on his couch that night. The next day he introduces me to Darwin. The next night I have an apartment in Venice, a house in Venice that I'm renting and I'm living with Darwin. For $60, I now had a month. The rent for this this house was $120 a month. He said, give me 60 bucks. I give him 60 bucks. It's like, I have a place to live for a month for 60 bucks. I have time to get a job. Oh my gosh. And off it went. Unseen allies, Gordon, Susan, Melora, Darwin, all of these people introducing me to other people. When you set out to achieve something that you're scared to do, that you don't know how you're going to do it, you want it to be just right before you take the first step. My experience is you don't need to know. You need to trust. You need to have courage. Your why needs to be stronger than your fear. But the trust is there are people out there that I don't know that are going to help me. They're my unseen allies. They're my buddies. They're my friends. They're going to look at me and they're going to say, I see a nice person there. I'm going to help them. And they're going to go out of their way to help you. And that's been my life story all along because I've, I've lived a life of needing to get chosen, chosen to be in a play, 
chosen to be the realtor that you choose to be a realtor, chosen to be the carpenter that does the remodeling job, chosen to be the speaker, chosen to be your speaking coach. I've, I've lived a life of having to be chosen constantly. And yet I've had the trust all along that what is mine will find me. And that people like you, Clay, will come along and see something in me that says, I want to check into this guy. I want to hang out with this guy. I see something there that we could connect with. So it's all about unseen allies and trusting and knowing what your why is and that your why is stronger than your fear. That's my story. Now, I spent 13 years in L.A. and I went from, I can't believe this. This is so amazing. This is a transformational experience. I'm here. I'm doing it to I need to get hired. I need a, a, a movie role. I need, I want, I need, I want. And I was miserable. And that's when I realized, okay, I need to pick a date. And I had to pick a date to get out of Hollywood the same way I picked a date to get in Hollywood. And 13 years after I got there, 13 years and one month later, I got in my car and I drove east. And I got out and I began the next chapter, which landed me in Colorado Springs, Fell in love with Deborah, got married, was a real estate agent for nine years, got into professional speaking. Professional speaking led to being a, a storytelling expert, which led to teaching and training corporate people on storytelling, which led to me having a podcast called Storytelling That Sticks for Business and Life. It all just leads into the next thing. Yeah, and I love the pick a date. I remember hearing that on your podcast, talking about having those uh uh, the phrase that pays, I believe, is how you framed it. It's called the phrase that pays. Pick a date. So if you're okay with it, I want to break that story down that you just shared. Because as a storytelling expert, you know what the, what elements are needed for a good story. And I think there are many within that story. But bef before we do that, I think that many of the listeners out there do tell stories for their job or give speeches. But I would say that most people typically don't give speeches in front, of, in front of audiences or they aren't in management trying to inspire change. So what should be their motivation for learning how to storytell? Well, story is the universal language and the effect that it has on the listener is that it activates their imagination. It stimulates their senses. Um, story is logical and emotional at the same time. It speaks to the uh, limbic brain, which is the feeling emotional brain. It speaks to the neocortex, which is the logical brain. If you understand form and structure of story and use it correctly, you engage the listener in a way that bullet points and facts and data do not. And the reason that people are interested in storytelling now, because it's become a big, big, big business. Corporations are looking for storytelling speakers and trainers and consultants like crazy because they realize we focus on facts and data and we think logic is going to do the job. If I give you a logical explanation about why you should do something, you're going to listen to those that logic and those facts and you're going to say, yes, that makes sense. I'm going to agree with what you're saying and I'm going to do it. And yet we know as human beings, we're not logical human beings. There's too many other things going on at the same time. And so logic explains, stories persuade. If you're in business, you're constantly selling a product, service, or idea, a concept. You're trying to get funding for your project. You're trying to get management to hire one more person for your team. You're trying to get something to happen. And if you just lay out a logical explanation for why, they can still turn you down. And this is where a lot of, a lot of the people that come to me, they say, Doug, I am a logical thinker. I'm a logical linear thinker and I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not convincing anybody to do anything. And I don't understand why, but I do know that story is important. So can you help me learn how to tell a story? And they're not professional speakers. Most of my clients at the beginning were professional speakers. Now they're all people in business who need to be more persuasive and influential and motivational, and especially people who are moving up the ladder of leadership. And so you, you need to understand how 
to start with the end in mind. What is it that I'm trying to accomplish in this presentation? And the story doesn't have to be a big honking, like amazing thing like I just did. I can tell a story for 15 minutes and I can keep people engaged for 15 minutes because I know what I'm doing and because I have a lot of passion and energy. But in a business context, the story needs to be three minutes long, maybe four minutes long. And it needs to be very well crafted and it needs to have a, a good intro and a good outro. And it's like, there's a lot of structure around how it works in a business context. But the basic premise is you tell a story because it will engage the listener in a way that logic and bullet points will not. I've often said bullet points anesthetize brain cells. Bullet points put people into a content coma. They're like bullets annihilating the brain of the listener, putting them asleep. They're like melatonin bullets. And if you want to get people to listen to your logic, your facts, and your data, you need a story that creates the context for the content that's going to follow. So I work with people on constructing their message in a way that's like, how can I get people to give me three minutes to tell a story then tell that story for three minutes and then follow with logic, facts, and data. But once I've created the why with the story, why this is important, I can then follow with data, statistics, financials. Now the financials are attached to something much bigger. So what are the elements of a good story? Well, the elements of a good story, you're familiar with my nine steps of story structure, right? Yep. Which is in one of my podcasts. So anybody listening to this, if you want to learn more about story and how it works, my storytelling that sticks for business and life podcast is a how to podcast. And there's the nine steps of story structure. I can't remember which uh, episode it is. It's maybe episode three or something, but the nine steps of story structure, I can shrink it down very quickly. There's a main character. There's you or me. And we're setting out to accomplish something, a task, a goal, an activity. Like getting across the country. country, getting to be a movie star or just getting funding for a project. But it, it doesn't matter what it is. The journey is that activity, that task, that goal, that thing I'm trying to accomplish. So there's a main character, somebody that's trying to accomplish it. There's the journey. That's the thing you're trying to accomplish. There's an obstacle. We don't have enough funding. We don't have enough people. We need three more people on our team. We need you to fund these three more people. The obstacle is what's the problem? What's the challenge? I call it the iceberg moment, and I'm referring to the Titanic when I say the iceberg moment because the Titanic was a nice cruise ship, but if it didn't hit an iceberg and sink and kill a bunch of people, we wouldn't know about it. So every story has an iceberg moment, an obstacle or crisis. So this main character sets off on a journey to accomplish something. They encounter an obstacle or challenge. They use their resources, their creativity, their team members, to overcome the obstacle, to find a solution. And so the overcome of the obstacle is, how are we gonna get this funding? How are we gonna get these other people? What will that mean? And then there's a re resolution to the story. And the resolution to the story is the happy ending. If you give us this funding and we hire three extra people, we'll be able to meet our, our goals and, and, and raise revenue. Ah, so it's like this can apply to hitchhiking cross country or getting funding for a project. It doesn't matter what it is, but the story doesn't have to be a business story. The thing that is amazing about story is I will tell a story about hitchhiking to Hollywood and then I will pivot to the business lesson. And so when you tell a personal story about going to Hawaii on vacation and losing your luggage, and all of a sudden it becomes this amazing vacation because you lost your luggage, you can pivot that lesson into a business lesson. And it's far more interesting in business if you tell a story that's not about business than if you tell a story that's directly related to business. So there's, there's so many ways this can work, Clay. So many different formulas, so many different things. And when I'm working with somebody, I say, well, what, what are you trying to accomplish? What's the context? Who's your audience? And then we go from there. But we always start with the end in mind. What, what is it that you're trying to accomplish with this story? What's the challenge you're up against? Okay, let's work on that story. What do you do to keep the audience, whoever they are, 
How do you keep them engaged throughout even just a three minute story? Well, at its foundation, there's the craft of the story. I know that the story is crafted correctly. It's built correctly. But then when I show up in front of the audience, just like I'm doing here, I show up with a lot of energy and with a lot of passion and with a lot of enthusiasm. And one of the things that I, that I say to people is stop telling a story. Stop standing still and telling a story. Get into it. Enjoy it. Have fun with it. Bring passion to it. Bring energy to it. And you can hear in my voice right now, I am using my entire body to tell you this story, even though this is audio. I have energy. I have passion. I use my voice. Well, people say, oh, well, you're an actor. Give me a break. Everybody has, after they've had a glass of wine at a barbecue, gesturing with their hands and lots of vocal variety. The challenge is a lot of people get up in front of their audience and they shrink. They become smaller. They become more contained because they're worried that they're going to get clobbered for being too emotive, too much gesture, too much energy. It's like, I have made a living with too much gesture and too much energy. So how do you engage your audience? You show up completely and totally as you without apology. You're the same you in front of an audience in business as you are hanging out with your friends at a barbecue, going out for drinks after work. Where Watch yourself when you're not at work. Watch yourself when you're in your most genuine, relaxed, comfortable in your own skin space. And observe that person. And you will see that that person has more vocal variety, is more playful, uses gestures naturally. And if you can actually see yourself, replicate that same person in front of an audience, rather than shrinking, take that same person and bring that up in front of a business audience. And they will look at you and go, that person is leadership material. That person has got some juice. That person can inspire people. But if you get up there and you shrink, they're going to look at you and go, uh, nope, nope, not leadership material. No need to promote And you know pretty, pretty quickly. I've seen a lot of presentations. I've seen a lot of speeches. And you know really quickly. And a lot of it is just feeling that energy that you're talking about. Well, you got you to gotta bring some juice. You got to bring some energy. I can clearly remember, and this is a very short little story about a, a, an executive. I was being considered to give a keynote to this insurance company. And I happened to be in Chicago and, and for something else. And they said, I want you to come by and I want you to meet the president because he wants to interview you in person before hiring you. And so I went up to this like 11th floor on this, you know, office building on Michigan Avenue. And I, and I went into the president's office and I sat down and there is this president sitting behind his desk and he was all in his power and he was intimidating. And I'm sitting in this chair across from him and he's asking me questions and I'm doing my best to maintain my cool. Cause it's like, I'm not a corporate guy. I don't sit in meetings with presidents of companies, but he was, he was powerful. And I got hired to do the gig. Well, on the morning of the gig, we're at the Palmer House in Chicago, this famous little place. And, and I get there early, of course. As you know, if you're going to give a speech, you get there early, you do a mic check and all this stuff. I'm there before anybody's coming into the room. And slowly but surely, a few people start to wander in. And maybe there's 15 or 20 people out of the 150 that are going to be there. They're wandering in. They're getting a bagel. They're getting a glass of orange juice, some coffee. And slowly but surely, they trickle in. Now it's like 25 people. And then the president shows up. He wanted to get there early as well. And I see him walking around and glad-hatting people and talking to people and patting them on the back and joking with people and having a good time. And I thought, wow. He's not the intimidating guy that I saw in the office one-on-one. -on -one. He's very personable. He's very real. And then it was time to start the program. And he was going to go up before me and do like five minutes of intro stuff. And then they were going to introduce me because I was going to be the keynote speaker. Well, I watched him over in the corner as it is getting closer to his time to go up. And he's standing over in a corner by himself and I could see him getting really nervous. And his fingers were, were jiggling some coins in his pocket or something. And then they introduced him. And I walked, watched him walk from the back of the room up to the front, walk up the three steps onto the stage and to stand behind the lectern. And I thought, he just lost all his mojo. He's gone. 
And the presentation that he gave was the most boring, stiff. I, I just couldn't believe it. It's like, what happened to this powerful president that I saw in the office? What happened to this guy who is glad handing and shaking and being personable? And I've seen it happen time and time again. People get scared and they stop being who they are. They stop bringing their whole self up to the platform and they get up there and they do this corporate speech thing. And you've seen it and I've seen it and it is just sad. It's just sad because people are afraid to be who they are. And if there's anything that I inspire people to do, people see me and they go, that guy's wacko. That guy's a little crazy. He's all over the place. Yeah. And I'm a professional speaker and I get paid to be a little wacko with precision, with professionalism, with very well constructed stories. So I show up as Doug. And I will, I will admit to you, Clay, I had a hard time doing that. I was afraid that if I showed up as Doug, people, when I left Hollywood, is what I'm talking about. When I gave my first couple of speeches in business and real estate, I was petrified because I didn't have a character. In LA, you give me a character, you give me lines, you give me a director, you give me a play, and I can be amazing because I can hide. But when I was giving my first speech and it was just me and there was no characters, like I couldn't hide and I was scared because I didn't know, well, who's Doug up here? And it took me a while to figure out, oh, I remember who Doug is. He's that happy guy. He's, he's playful. He's the guy who hangs out at a barbecue, goes out for drinks. Oh, that guy. And I started to let him out of the box. And that's when I started getting hired to speak because I started to show up completely and totally as me. Now, it's been a lifetime of embracing me getting out of my insecurity of growing into my power and appreciating myself for who I am. It took a long time and I hope it doesn't take that long for anybody listening to this because it took me until my late forties. For those who are stuck in that moment right now, what advice would you have for them? Love yourself and let them watch. Love yourself, embrace yourself, accept yourself as you are at this moment with all of your foibles and all of your warts and all of your wonderfulness. Love yourself, learn to accept yourself, and then get out at the front of the room and let them watch you being you. That's what it took for me. Eventually, there was a point at which I said, I'm just going to get up there and I'm just going to enjoy living in Douglas' body and brain and mind. I'm just going to have a blast up there and I'm going to bring all my joy and all my passion and all my silliness. I'm going to bring it all up there. And I'm going to let them watch what it's like for somebody to be okay with themselves. And when I was able to do that, people would hire me and they would hire me to teach them and they would hire me to coach them. And they would say, this guy gets it. And he doesn't just get technique. He gets the whole package. And I'm not, I'm, I don't say this with a lot of ego, like I'm amazing and you're not. I'm 72 friggin' years old. It took me a long time. And I'm admitting to you that it took me until my late 40s to finally break through all my insecurities and all my crap and finally go, Douglas, when are you going to stop apologizing? When are you going to stop being afraid? When are you going to learn to love yourself? And it took a lot of heartbreak and a lot of failure and a lot of, I mean, leaving Hollywood not making it in Hollywood after, after 16 years of trying, that was a killer. So I'm not sitting here bragging like, wow, I've had it easy and I'm doing great. I got annihilated along the way a lot of times. I got my heart broken by women a number of times. I had immense failures so many times that, but at a certain point I had to say, what is the foundation of all of this? What is the only thing that's going to keep this going? That Doug's okay. Doug's all right. So at this point, I say with no ego and no apology, I'm okay. How about you? Makes me think about you talking about how you were used to being a character or given here's, here's who you need to be. And that's what you practiced. That's what you tried to get jobs at. And then you felt like that that's what you needed to create in order to be in front of other people. And it's interesting to me because I, I've had that feeling before and then 
occasionally the realization that, you know what, it's a lot easier just to be yourself because you don't have to remember your lines. You don't have to remember what, what character you're supposed to be. You could just be yourself and that's a whole lot easier in the long run, but you have to get past that discomfort and that's a really hard thing to do. So I appreciate you sharing. It seems like that you have the ability to just recall stories and not only recall them, but tell them in a way that is inspiring for others and in a way that people will remember them. So I'm curious about in the background, how do you go about having these experiences developing the story and remembering them or having them written down somewhere. I'm just curious how, how you go about that. Well, first of all, as a professional speaker, as someone who gave keynotes and everything, I had to decide, okay, I've got a 60 minute keynote. It's about change. It's about the positive power of change. What stories teach elements of mastering the process of change? So I start out with the agenda. What's, what's, what's the goal? What do I need a story for? And then I go on in what I call a story safari. So I'm always saying, what do you need a story to do? Do you need it to teach honesty, integrity, punctuality, uh, self-love? What do you need a story to do? What do you need a story to teach? So you start with the point in mind. You start with the end in mind. And then I go on a story safari and say, well, where did I learn that? Now, I don't have 100 stories that I tell. If you listen to my podcast, you're going to hear me tell four or five stories. And each podcast, I tell a story that works for that podcast for that lesson. So it's always agenda driven. But the story safari means if I want to teach a story about integrity, where was I out of integrity? I don't teach a story about integrity. I teach a story about being out of integrity and learning that being out of integrity taught me that I had to be in integrity. If I want to teach a story about punctuality and showing up on time and stop screwing up, I tell a story about not showing up on time, about not having punctuality, about being a screw up. Because in, in, in the story, you're always, you're always going to the opposite. Where did I learn to have integrity? Well, because I was out of integrity. Where did I learn punctuality? Well, I was out of punctuality. I was always late. So we're always going for where did I learn that lesson? Where did I encounter that obstacle, feel the pain, and realize this doesn't work for me? I have to solve this. I have to figure out how can I be punctual? How can I live in integrity? How can I be more honest? Whatever that is that I need to do. So in going on a story safari, a lot of times I do this exercise with people in the workshops and I'm retired now. So don't call me up and hire me for a keynote or a training. I don't want to do it. I only do stuff online now. But when I'd be in front of an audience, I'd say, okay, so where did you learn that lesson? And I would see people sitting in front of me. I got a room full of 45 people and half of them, their pen is not moving and they're staring at the ceiling and they're trying to scan their entire life. Well, even you at 35, you say you're 35? 34. 34. Don't even give me that 30... extra year, Doug. Huh? We'll give you an extra Don't give year. me that extra year. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but it's hard to find a story when you don't have a place to look. And so what I would do is I'd say, okay, I want a story about da-da-da-da. I'm not coming up with anything. So what I do is I go back to high school. I say, okay, let's go back to high school. Uh, let's go back to track team. Did I learn that? And was there anything in track team in high school? How about that summer between Augustana and Kansas? How about freshman year of college? And I keep going to a specific time in a specific place. And I scan that moment in time, that period in time, and to see, did I learn integrity there? Where did I learn integrity? And I see, I keep going through chapters and periods of my life. Sometimes I will pick an address, an apartment. So right now for all of you, I would say, do this exercise with me. Go back to when you were 21 years of age, where were you living? Visualize the house, the apartment, the dorm, wherever the couch that you're you know, sleeping on. When you're 21, where were you living? Now that you can visualize that physical environment, now you start to look at what happened while I was living there. 
Who was I in relationship with? Was I single? Was I in relationship with somebody? Did I have a roommate? And we're looking for conflict, obstacles, misunderstandings. Now we're also looking at, well, what was my job? How was I making a living? Now we're looking for obstacles, challenges, mistakes, failures, small disasters in the job. Was that working for you? Was that not working for you? Conflicts, personality conflicts, job conflicts. This is a lousy job. I shouldn't be doing this. Now I look at the vehicle. How are you getting back and forth in life? Did you have a crap car that kept breaking down? Every time I go back in time, I keep remembering my MGB and what a crap car it was. And it was always in the shop. It's like, oh, so we look at all, we just, we just go to that place in time, 21 years of age. Where did you live? Who are you in a relationship? What was your job? What was your car? Did you have any health challenges? Did you break a leg? Did you get sick? You know, all, you, and we look at 21. And if you look at 21, you go, that was a lovely year of my life. Nothing bad happened. Okay, fine. 25. You're 25. Where were you living? We do the same thing. And we go from job to job. We go from building to building. We go from relationship to relationship. And we search for knowing that I want a story to teach integrity. <clears throat> now that story safari goes to all those specific things. And we're looking for a moment. And it doesn't have to be a Mount Everest or cancer. It's just a moment. A meaningful moment where something happened and you went, man, that was bad. <clears throat> That, that, that wasn't good. I don't want that to happen again in relationship, in job, in choices, misunderstandings. And so that's how we find the story. Now, once you've identified the story, and you might identify three or four, and then you ask yourself, what's the one that's the best one, the juiciest one that teaches this lesson? What is the one that's got the most emotion? Because it's got to have emotion and it's got to have some pain. You've got to be willing to share your pain in order to get people to relate to you because everybody's gone through crap. Everybody's gone through pain. <clears throat> the speakers that we hate are the speakers that get up on stage and brag about how they got their Lamborghini by the time they were 25. It's like, oh, shut the fuck up. Oh, shut up. I don't want to hear about how you got your Lamborghini by the time 25. I can't relate to that. But I can relate to the guy who struggled and struggled and struggled or the women who struggled and struggled because we've all had pain. We've all had struggle. So that's how you find your story. Now that you found the story, now you use the nine steps of story structure to craft it. You script it. You write it out. Now you say, what if I've got a, a million stories for my life? Well, you only have six or seven or eight or 10 that you can really use because what you want is you want to find a couple of stories that you can craft into something that you can use because people will ask you to tell them again. You go into a board meeting and you'll tell a story for three minutes and people go, that is awesome. Oh man, I was there with you. I was there with you. I felt that I had that. And people are like talking to you after the meeting, like they're so energized. And then they say, you know what? I don't want to invite you into this other team. I want you to tell that story to this other team because now they're starting to see that this, this story is applicable in many different ways. Now your leadership material, now you're inspiring. Now you understand craft. And so the, the thing that I say to people is it's okay for you to find a story and identify the story and then go out and tell it, but it's probably not going to work at the way that you want it to work because you rehearsed it in your head or you rehearsed it in your car but you never rehearsed it on your feet out loud in front of a room full of people. You never practiced it. You never crafted it. And I don't know about you, but I am really, really, really comfortable on my feet. And I have got up in front of audiences without taking the time, getting a little arrogant, thinking I can just pull this off. And the story just took off and went spastic on me. And I went off to me. a tangent and I got lost on a tangent that led to a tangent that led to a dead end cul-de-sac. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, what did I just do? So you got you to bring some craft to it. If you really want to be effective, you need to bring some craft. And you need to have a phrase that pays. 
Yeah. The phrase that pays for sure. I mean, I, I recall so often just being in, in sales and all these presentations, internal, external, so many people, they talk so much and they really don't say anything. It's just a yeah, it whole lot of lead, talking. It doesn't lead to a takeaway. No, no. And there's so much content and we already are overwhelmed in our daily life with content. So then you go into this place, a sales pitch, a presentation, a webinar, whatever it is, and it's just more content, more of those bullets of the, the melatonin bullet. <laughs> and in the end, just nothing, nothing sticks. It's like a cheap Chinese buffet. There's 27 dishes and they're all just the same and there's nothing memorable. I call it a cheap Chinese buffet keynote presentation. Yeah, I've seen it many times, but that phrase that pays the, um, you know, and I've, I've, I listened to that episode and again, I'm going to link all these and include some of my favorites in there. But my favorite episode was this phrase that pays and you used one earlier in the pod today around pick a date, pick a date, and that a phrase be that pays. very applicable. And I've been thinking about phrases that pay for me. And one of them that, that keeps coming to mind that I feel like I use a decent amount is either take the stairs or walk the golf course. Both of those are good. And so I'm going to be working Doug on, on using the, uh, this craft method to see what kind of story I can put together using those. All you need to do is, is, is be able to pivot from this story about where you were choosing whether to take an escalator or the stairs and you chose to take the stairs and how that became a principle in your life. And then you pivot to how is that applicable in business? Are we trying to take shortcuts, take the escalator, trying to make it easy on ourselves? Are we doing all the due diligence necessary by taking the stairs, take the stairs. And, and so it's, 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 Having the phrase that pays that is connected to the story that pivots to the business lesson, uh, it, that's the whole package right there. It's extremely simple and it's extremely complex because it doesn't just happen. You got to work on it to make sure that when you get up there, you know what you're going to do and then you do what you know you were going to do because you rehearsed it and practiced it and then it works. And then people are like, oh my God, that was brilliant. You can be brilliant. I want everybody to hear this. You can be brilliant. Stop being sloppy. Take the stairs. I love it. Doug's got a big grin on his face. <laughs> a lot of the time. Oh, I love your energy and I love everything we talked about. I've got a lot of energy coming out of this podcast. So, um, and this is what this podcast is all about is hopefully providing some level of inspiration, even, even if it's just for one person to do something a little bit different, try something a little bit new, step out of their comfort zone a little bit. And the energy you bring and the stories you tell and the guidance and advice that you provide, Doug, is exactly what we're looking for here. So I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on. And I want to make sure that obviously I'm going to direct into your podcast, but where else would you like to direct the listeners? Well, the first step is go to Storytelling That Sticks for Business and Life on Apple, on Amazon, on Spotify, on Deezer, on wherever you get your podcast. You know, listen, learn, subscribe. Um, you can also, you know, contact me directly if you have questions, if you're looking for a coach, for a story, for a speech, whatever, at Doug at DougStevenson.com, Doug at DougStevenson.com. Uh, my website is www.storytelling-in-business.com. And there's all kinds of resources there. And also go to YouTube. Search my name, Doug Stevenson Storytelling in YouTube. There's tons of videos up there that you can watch and learn and study with me on YouTube. I put lots of stuff up there because I like to produce things. I like what I learned in acting class is what looks like just a brilliantly talented actor. The foundation underneath it is a whole lot of craft. And what I bring to everything that I do is there's a lot of craft. There's a lot of work that goes into making something look effortless and brilliant. I've always used the example. I love watching brilliant actors because they make it look like they're just not acting. 
Meryl Streep, Kate Blanchett, Denzel Washington, Brad Pitt, believe it or not, even Tom Cruise, who I think is a shit person, but he's an amazing actor. These people have amazing craft and discipline going on underneath the surface. And yet they just make it look effortless. George Clooney, so many people, Julia Roberts, they just, they, they look like they're just, they're just talking. And yet I know from all of my, my studying, it's like, it takes work to be effortlessly brilliant. So take the stairs, work on yourself. That's the one thing I have done my entire life is I keep working on Doug. How can Doug be a better Doug? How can Doug be a better husband? How can Doug be a better coach? How can Doug be a better Doug? Period. So work on yourself. Yeah, it gets back to that growth mindset we talked about in the example you gave. It's a growth mindset. Being okay with failure, wanting, having a desire to learn, and being okay not knowing something. Yeah, you don't have to know how. You just don't have to know how to get where you want to go. And being willing to let the, the path diverge into another, you know, the, the road less taken. I mean, I thought acting was it. Acting wasn't it. It was it for a while, but then it was like, oh, it, that's not it. And then speaking became it. And now coaching is it. It's like, oh, it just keeps morphing. It keeps revealing itself to me if I'm willing to pay attention. So be be willing to change. I mean, you know, when we say, you know, work on yourself, it's like, but in working on yourself, you have to continuously, when you're working on yourself, you have to continuously let go and move on and let go and move on and embrace something else. And that's been the story of my life. Let go of Chicago, go to LA. Let go of LA, go to Colorado Springs. Let go of Colorado Springs, go to Tucson. Let go of this, let go of that. Move on, move on, move on. And in those up. moments, you're not only let going of the city, you're letting go of the some of the connections you've made, the relationships you've had. That's that's favorite, some of the hardest your stuff. Favorite res- restaurant. I mean, all that stuff. Well, that's you the, let go. It's that's it, it's so it's so hard to trust that I'm letting go of all of this stuff and all of these people and all of these roots that I've that I've that I've dug into the ground in my life, and I'm going to let go of all of that for what? For, I, I have no idea what. Will there be people out there who will love me like these people? Will there be people who embrace me like these people? Will I be able to make it somewhere else? And of course you will, because everywhere you go, there you are. You take yourself with you. And so when I got to LA, I love the fact that this guy, Gordon, picked me up and in 10 minutes he said, I'm going to take you home. I see something in you. And it's like, that's a, that's to, to me, that's still... 50 years ago, and I still see him telling me, get in the car. I still see that moment and and still feel that connection with him and realize that's always going to happen if you are who you are. Because he just looked at me and said, you're a good guy. Come on, I trust you. He took me home and he let me like sit on his couch and take a bath and went down to the beach. And it's like he trusted me within 10 minutes. It's like, what is that? Well, I have to look back and say, well, I must have been okay. I must have been an okay guy. He must have felt something in my spirit. Well, then that that is that, that's who you are everywhere. People will love you yeah. no matter where you go. No doubt, that's, that's great advice, Doug. And well, what have we missed? We have covered more than we could have possibly covered, and everything in between. So, the only technical thing is the phrase that pays. People are hearing that and wondering what the heck is it. Phrase that pays is a short and sweet verb-oriented call to action. Pick a date. Trust your gut. Make your move. Get over it. Get back on the bike. It's a phrase that pays like, take the stairs. It starts with a verb, take. What? The stairs. It's a condensation of the lesson. So you take the lesson, you might like, you get to the end of your story and you start explaining and training. And it's like, no, you get to the end of your story and you say, so what I learned from that experience is take the stairs. How about you? Do you take a shortcut? Do you take the easy way or do you take the stairs? Do you do the work? My challenge for you is take the stairs. So I just gave you steps seven, eight, and nine in the storytelling, 
the nine steps of story structure, but a phrase that pays is, is the way that you are memorable. Because what I've discovered over the years is people remember my phrase, which causes them to remember the story, which causes them to remember me, which causes them to pick up the phone and call me and say, are you available on April 12th? <laughs> so the phrase that pays leads to monetary gain leads to business. It so literally pays. It, the phrase that pays, pays. It does. It pays. Sure. Yeah. And you're living proof of that. Well, Doug, uh, thank you for taking the time to share your wisdom and everything. So today we've built with Doug Stevenson. Doug, thanks for being on. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Live your life, guys. Story on. Hey, listener, it's Clay. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Build with Clay podcast. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen so you can discover all the episodes and hear from others about their growth journey. If you know me at all, you know that I love feedback. So please rate the episode and provide your comments so I can grow and be better for you and our guests. For more content, you can find Build with Clay on Instagram at buildwithclay and head to claydavis.substack.com where you can sign up for a bi-weekly newsletter sent directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're inspired to grow.